Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Coming up, evidence for a super bright supernova that left debris behind on Earth. Well, if you would have been on Earth, you would see a new star to appear on the sky, on the daylight sky. It would be so bright. And a study of human sacrifice exposes the dark side of religion. Religion is often claimed to underpin morality, but our study shows how uh, religion can also be exploited by social elites. Plus, mobile apps for mental health are more popular than ever. But are they any good? This is The Nature Podcast for April 7th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Astronomers are used to looking up into the night sky to learn about the cosmos. But increasingly, scientists are finding that the secrets of the solar system's history are also written down much closer to home, in the fabric of our planet itself. Reporter Lizzie Gibney checks out two papers in Nature this week. When a massive star reaches the end of its life, it explodes in a supernova. Elements that are fused in its fiery core are flung far and wide. Back in the 1990s, scientists suggested that if an explosion was big enough and near enough to Earth, there might be a chance of seeing minute amounts of that debris on our planet and perhaps learning about the stars in the process. The prediction proved right around 15 years ago when traces of a radioactive element called iron-60 were found in the ocean crust. Iron-60 can't be produced on Earth, so it must have come from space. But exactly when and how remained up for debate. Now an international team of space archaeologists has carried out the most in-depth stellar dig to date. Here's Anton Volner of the Australian National University. We recovered samples from from the Indian Ocean, from the Pacific Ocean and from the Atlantic Ocean. So we cover basically all the major oceans and demonstrated by finding iron-60 in all those samples that the signal must be global. It must come from a source, therefore, which is outside of the solar system and the most likely source for iron-60 are massive stars. The amount of iron they found is tiny. The team calculate that for every square centimetre of Earth, only around 100 atoms of iron-60 would have hit it per year. But that fits with the amount that would be expected from nearby supernovae explosions. As well as getting samples from across the globe, Anton's team looked at a different type of sample, ocean sediments. These tell them in much greater detail when the iron-60 arrived. Because the sediments which we used had a much better time resolution, we got a better information about the time influx. And interestingly, this time profile was much wider than we would expect from a single supernova. 
So this all tells us that Earth has faced a series of supernova explosions from an origin which is close by in, in galactic uh, dimensions. For astronomers such as Dieter Breitschwert, it's not enough to know when Earth was littered with supernova debris. They also want to pinpoint exactly where these mega-explosions happened. The trouble is, we don't find young massive stars, the kind that explode in a supernova, anywhere in our solar system's neighbourhood. But Dieter and his colleagues had an idea for some likely culprits. A moving clump of stars, which passed through near the Sun around two million years ago. Of course, the stars that actually went supernova are long gone. But the other stars in the clump can give clues as to the size and the position of their exploded companions. The task is really to find out from various kinds of observations. When did the stars form? How did they evolve? How long did they live? How did they move through space? For this, we fortunately have data from the astrometry satellite Hipparchos, which tells us the positions and the proper motions of stars in space, and we just follow them back in time. By winding back the clock, they can model the whole history of the clump, including where and when supernovae would have exploded. They can then compare their models with the data. We use the laws of physics that tell us how an explosion occurs and how this blast wave from the explosion sweeps across the solar system. So in order to find out if our models correctly produce the ion-60 we find in the ocean crust, we had to do really severe and extensive modelling on massive parallel computers. It turns out that their model explains the ion record pretty neatly. The really nice thing about this model is that when we first did the first simulations, it almost falls out uh, you know, completely by itself. That We get this peak at 2.2 million years that has been found already 15 years ago and has now also been found in this recent publication by uh, Wallner et al. That told me at least that our model must be fundamentally correct. Their model provided all sorts of information, that the explosions were around 300 light-years from Earth and that the stars would have been nine times larger than the Sun. And using Iron 60 to help confirm these details gives Dieter and his team a fascinating insight into the history of our part of the galaxy. Well, if you would have been on Earth, you would probably have been a member of the species Homo erectus or so, two million years ago, and for a normal person that would look at the sky, that, that would see a new star to appear on the sky, which would have a, a brightness that is as large as the full moon. They are really spectacular. They emit, for a short time, more light than the entire galaxy. What would the effect of such an energetic event be? At the moment, we can only speculate. But intriguingly, the two periods of time which in Anton's study show higher levels of iron-60 seem to coincide with decreases in Earth's temperature. So perhaps supernovae might influence the climate, and even maybe human evolution. Could such an event happen again? In the galaxy today, there aren't any pre-supernova stars as close to us as in Homo erectus's time. But a supernova in our galaxy is most certainly overdue. The statistic tells us that about three per century should occur, so every human being should observe one supernova during their lifetime. But as it goes, the story, we haven't observed one since Kepler, which was in 1604. So we are long overdue, and all astronomers hope to at least see one during their lifetime, but of course not too close. That was Dieter Breitschwert of the Berlin Institute of Technology talking to reporter Lizzie Gibney about studying the stars by looking into the ground.
You also heard from Anton Volner of the Australian National University, and both of their papers are out in Nature this week. Check out nature.com nature for more. If you are having difficulties with your mental health, what are your options for treatment? Do you take medication? Go to counselling? Download an app? There's now a huge number of apps available for a wide range of mental health conditions. Let's say you have insomnia, difficulty sleeping. Hello there, Adam. Oh, hello. Welcome to Sleepio. I am the prof, and I'm here to do everything I can to help you sleep better. Everything we do here at Sleepio is rooted firmly in scientific evidence and designed by... But what scientific evidence are we talking about? Co-founder of Sleepio, Colin Espy, is based at Oxford University. Although the professor of sleep medicine does boast a Scottish accent, he assures me that he is not the animated prof character that just welcomed me to the app. It was a very happy coincidence where I'm concerned, you know, that hey, oh, we end up having a, a, a character who speaks with a, a Scottish accent. But what exactly is the friendly prof trying to help people with? Most people who have a difficulty sleeping feel that uh, getting to sleep or getting back to sleep is like walking a tightrope. You know, it's something that they're finding extremely difficult to do. Sleepio aims to help people who struggle sleeping get back into good sleeping habits and to quiet their racing thoughts as they try to nod off. To do this, it employs the well-established tools of cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT. But the researchers went further to make sure the app would help people sleep better. We did what we call a a randomised, placebo-controlled trial to test uh, that this intervention actually worked properly. And this is the way that you would test any intervention for a health problem. And the results of the study showed that the actual intervention, the Sleepio intervention, uh, was more effective than this placebo condition. So Sleepio has been tested in the appropriate way for a clinical tool. But are these apps always of the standard a clinician, or patient for that matter, would want? I asked Jennifer Nicholas, who's currently studying for her PhD at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. For my PhD, I'm looking at using smartphone apps to support self-management practices in bipolar disorder. And there are hundreds of these smartphone apps. Last August, Jennifer published a paper that looked at 82 apps that purported to be able to offer some form of help to people with bipolar disorder. Not only did Jennifer find that lots of the apps lack useful information, but she also came across some apps with dangerous advice. One app mentioned that to help you sleep during a manic episode, they suggested taking a shot of hard liquor before bed. And while that app has been removed, there's nothing to say that there's not another one that's come up in its place that is saying something similarly harmful. Needless to say, alcohol use is discouraged as a way of self-medicating bipolar disorder. But this wasn't the only bad advice the study uncovered. Another app, which also appears to have disappeared from the App Store, suggested that bipolar disorder could transfer to your relatives if they spent too much time with you. So proceed with caution, but no need to steer completely clear of the App Store. Apps have a lot of potential according to Jen Martin, Program Manager of MindTech, a UK centre for developing and testing mental health tech. I personally think that it's actually a really positive thing. There's loads of um, real uh, potential for for digital technologies, technologies such as apps to help people with mental health conditions. And I think it, it does have that real potential to give people access to treatment, support and information at a time when they most need it. 
Not only could apps effectively provide out-of-hours care for patients, but they might also be able to help the huge numbers experiencing mental health problems and not receiving any treatment at all. In England, it's estimated that 75% go without help. But Jen Martin agrees with Jennifer Nicholas that the landscape for mental health apps is currently something of a wild west. This is a completely unregulated area, so somebody can, can build an app, um, have it on an app store within a few days, and somebody could be downloading it and using it. And even then, the only indicator of quality is not a clinical trial result or the endorsement of a health body, but a quick review and a star rating. Jennifer Nicholas has looked into these too. All that's there in terms of stars is the user star rating and user reviews, which we found had actually no correlation to an app's quality. There is really no indication for consumers about what might be helpful or beneficial to them and what might be unhelpful or even potentially harmful. But the fast pace of digital technology comes with its benefits too. For example, the ease with which data can be collected from apps could make it much easier to assess their effects than it is for traditional approaches. Colin Espy is looking forward to a future in which apps for mental health are better developed. But he cautions that we have to hold these interventions up to the same high standards that we use for other, more traditional healthcare. You see, digital medicine could be as available as conventional medicine. And, and if that is the case, uh, there's, you know, there's every reason that as, at a population health level, uh, we, should, we, we have a duty of care, of governance, to make sure that what people are being given, whether it's a medicine in the pill form, a medicine in an app form, that is actually working. That was Colin Espy, and before him, Jen Martin and Jennifer Nicholas. Find out more about mental health apps in a feature in this week's Nature. That's over at nature.com forward slash nature. And if you're curious about the Sleepio Insomnia app, you can find out more at sleepio.com. That's S-L-E-E-P-I-O dot com. Still to come, the grisly study finding out the function of human sacrifice. That's after the research highlights with Noah Baker. A machine the size of a fridge can produce four common medicines on demand in just hours. Manufacturing drugs is usually a long-winded process, with drugs made in batches and using ingredients sourced from different places. Making them instead on a production line would be a much smoother process, less likely to suffer shortages and disruption. The team behind the fridge-sized machine showed that they could feed it chemicals and get thousands of doses of drugs, including diazepam and lidocaine, out the other end. It could prove useful for on-demand drug manufacture in hospitals or for humanitarian work. The results are in science. Astronomers have discovered a white dwarf star with an atmosphere made almost completely of oxygen. White dwarfs are the collapsed remnants of small stars, what's left behind when the fuel runs out. Usually, their atmospheres are made out of the lightest elements, hydrogen and helium, but one dwarf has had these layers burnt off, leaving it with oxygen and traces of neon and magnesium. The outer layers could have been scorched off by a fiery merger with another star, or by burning carbon from within. The paper is also in science. A word of warning, this next story is about human sacrifice and contains a description that's a bit graphic. You might just want to skip ahead if there are young kids around. Joseph Watts studies how cultures and societies evolve. 
which doesn't sound at all gruesome until you know what aspect he's lately been looking at. He's been combing through historical and anthropological accounts for evidence of human ritual sacrifice, killing a person to please or appease the gods. It's pretty shocking at first. Some of them are pretty grim. Joseph told me the story of the Ngayu people, who live in southern Borneo. According to historical accounts, they used to sacrifice slaves to the gods in lengthy ceremonies. There were human sacrifices that started at sunset and were basically a prolonged ritual of slow death that occurred until sunrise. And over that period of time, the victim would be stabbed and would basically collapse in their own blood at the end of it. That's probably at the more graphic end of the spectrum. No kidding. Human sacrifice was practised pretty widely in history, though it's very rare to hear of it today. What interested Watts and his team at the University of Auckland in New Zealand was the following. Why would a society willingly kill one of its members? Anthropologists have a few theories about the function of human sacrifice. Here's Jon Bremer, a retired professor of religious studies who edited a book on human sacrifice. Human sacrifice, for example, uh, when the Romans performed it, it happened at times of huge crisis. It could have been a show of strength then at times of political instability. Or perhaps it's a grisly way of bonding a group together. People who belong to a secret society uh, have to participate in a human sacrifice to become a member of the group. But the theory that Joseph Watts and his team wanted to test was this one. People have proposed this idea that human sacrifice is basically a a social tool to to maintain uh, power, but it hasn't really been systematically tested uh, across a large sample of cultures. It's more usual in anthropology to study one or just a handful of related cultures. So to assess whether the theory held true across lots of different groups, Watts analysed data from almost 100 Austronesian cultures. These people all speak related languages and live across a wide area, all the way from Madagascar in the west to Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, in the east. The team worked out the relationships between the Austronesian groups, their family tree, And then they looked through historical and anthropological accounts to work out where human sacrifice had taken place and what other features of societies it corresponded to. They found that sacrifice went along with the degree of social stratification in the society, the presence of a strong hierarchy. While human sacrifice didn't facilitate the initial transitions from egalitarian societies to uh, any form of social stratification, once the stratification has arisen... um, human sacrifice then functioned to stabilise it. So those cultures who had human sacrifice were far less likely to become egalitarian again than those cultures without human sacrifice. And because sacrifice is dictated by religion, this suggests that religion was keeping societies more stratified. The link between stratified societies and human sacrifice isn't totally new, says Jon Bremer. In a book published in the 1920s, anthropologist Edwin Meyer Loeb suggested that human sacrifice happens more in societies with strong governments. The the size of the database, I I think, makes this much more certain than the uh, observation of the American anthropologist from 1923, who I'm sure only had maybe 10 or or, or 12 uh, cases, if that, uh, but but just was an intelligent observer. So so that... From that perspective, I think it's persuasive. But the big data approach can miss some details. I I mean, as a historian, I I find it very hard to to use this article because it doesn't tell you uh, about these human sacrifices. Did they happen very often? 
Was it a regular uh, performance of Human Sacrifice? Was it exceptional? Which date is the source telling us uh, that the Human Sacrifice was performed? It's very hard for an outsider to judge the reliability of the data. It's a great way, though, of standing back and finding big patterns. Here's Mark Pagel, an evolutionary biologist at Reading University in the UK. Well, I think what's, what's so valuable about this, what's known as comparative approach that these authors have taken, is that by studying 93, in their case, you know, separate societies, and using the, the historical methods that they use, these statistical methods that allow them to reconstruct various scenarios of the past, they can actually trace the evolution of these traits and these relationships, uh, the evolution of elite society and the evolution of you know, ritual human sacrifice. They can trace these over varieties of societies, and so they're effectively replicating an ethnographic study over and over and over. Pagel says some cultural anthropologists are reluctant to accept the results of comparative studies. And besides, it would require a lot of new training in Bayesian statistics. Right, Jan Bremer? I'm not sure if I see my colleagues with great enthusiasm rushing into that. (laughs) Bremer does see the value of working with statisticians on common interests. And the conclusion of the study should be interesting to both sides. It shows the dark side of keeping large societies together and offers one explanation. Joseph Watts again. So religion is often claimed to underpin morality, but these our study shows how uh, religion can also be exploited by social elites, um, and human sacrifice illustrates just how far that can go, really. And as abhorrent as human sacrifice might seem to us today, Pagel points out that its equivalents still remain. In sort of modern settings, we, we, we can perhaps see parallels of this. You know, we can see some dictatorial regimes use something like human sacrifice when, you know, people can be almost literally grabbed off the street and killed. And this is publicized in a way that will then keep the rest of society in line. Mark Pagel of Reading University and before him, Jon Bremer and study author Joseph Watts. Find Joseph's paper at nature.com slash nature and find the Pulotu database of Austronesian cultures, which is an excellent place for a browse, by googling Pulotu, P-U-L-O-T-U. Time now for our weekly news chat and Davide Castelvecchi joins us in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hi, Adam. So there have been some developments in the hunt for dark matter. Now, before we get to what's happening, what is dark matter? So dark matter is this invisible substance which is supposed to be at least five times as abundant in the universe as regular matter, the stuff that we can touch. But we cannot touch it and we cannot see it, but it still seems to be there and to to bind galaxies together through its uh, gravity. Now, you've said that we can't touch it, we can't see it, but there is actually one group who says, hang on, maybe we have seen it. So, yes, and it's very controversial, and it has been this drama in the world of physics for... 20 years almost now, uh, basically they, they have this detector deep underground in central Italy and they claim to have detected uh, particles of dark matter, uh, weakly interacting massive particles to be specific, which is a, w- one particular candidate for what dark matter could be made of. So that that abbreviates as WIMP. When they say we think we've seen these WIMPs, what have they actually seen? They have uh, these high-purity crystals that are monitored by uh, light sensors. And the idea is that when a WIMP particle hits 
the nucleus of an atom, just the energy from the recoil, should create a little bit of light. Isn't that pretty much exactly what you'd expect if there was just some normal radiation passing through the area? It is, but they are also seeing something uh, which uh, normal radiation should not do, which is a seasonal fluctuation that peaks in early June and, and then it goes down to a minimum in early December. You know, they've, they've tested for all possible other effects they, they could think of and they couldn't find any other explanation, so they, they, they've been claiming now for a long time that they believe this is dark matter. But other people are a bit more skeptical. So yeah, so then the problem is uh, no one believes them because a lot of other experiments uh, have done a similar search and they found nothing. Now those other experiments where uh, they use different materials, no one until now has really done the same experiment with cesium iodide. Finally now there are three experiments, uh, one of which is uh, starting in just a few weeks in South Korea. Uh, and then another one in Spain, and, and another one will have uh, two detectors, one in central Italy and one in uh, Australia. What do the original experimenters make of all this, or for all these new attempts to see it? They've been kind of despondent uh, since the beginning because they were uh, kind of viciously attacked at, at meetings early on from, from people who didn't believe them at all. And so they've become very defensive, and now they, you know, after all these years, they, they have amassed like 14 years worth of data and they say well we have seen dark matter and we don't really care what other people say. Well we'll have to wait to see how it works out I suppose but something slightly more imminent and slightly closer to home though are the elections for the Republican and Democrat presidential candidates. Now of course the front run in the Republican camp is Donald Trump. How are scientists responding to Donald Trump's potential candidacy? Some of um, Trump's often often impromptu statements that appear to not have been done with a lot of deliberation have been on immigration. And you know, our listeners probably know about his claim that he wants to build a wall dividing the U.S. from Mexico and to have Mexico pay for it. But he's also talked about restricting the number of visas for highly skilled workers. So those are the famous H-1B visas that people who work for universities or tech companies would, would apply for. And it's not just people from Mexico who Donald Trump's made specific comments about. Yes, he's also singled out Muslims. He even said we should restrict the uh, visits by foreigners who are Muslims. And this, of course, is something that, I mean, apart from its constitutional dubiousness, it's something that has a lot of people scared that there could be uh, intolerance towards immigrants. Now, now, what do we actually know about Donald Trump's position on science itself? It turns out surprisingly little. He seems to often answer questions posed by, by reporters or at debates. He just seems to answer whatever comes to mind that would be the most outrageous answer at that particular time. You know, he's expressed uh, doubt about the global warming. He seems to have uh, bought into conspiracy theories about vaccines. So the few signs we have are not very encouraging from the science point of view. Now, finally, Davide, before we let you go, it would be improper to have you in the studio and not at least mention gravity waves. Uh, this week in Nature, <laughs> there's actually a, a book that's being covered. It's on gravitational waves. Yes, it was exquisitely well timed 
And it's a book by uh, Jana Levin, who is herself a cosmologist and knows a lot of the protagonists of, of uh, the uh, hunt for gravitational waves personally. And so her book is, is filled with long interviews and uh, biographical details that are very interesting. How coincidental do you think the publication date of this book was? Do you think she really did just get lucky? It was known that LIGO was, uh, you know, LIGO is a laser interferometry gravitational wave observatory, which discovered gravitational waves last September. It was known that it was due to start observation and it was known that it had a good chance finally to detect gravitational waves. So she, you know, she knew that and she didn't quite know. I think everyone was caught by surprise that the discovery happened so early. They hadn't even started officially taking data. So uh, at that point, I'm guessing she rushed uh, and she and her publisher rushed the book to publication. So that book by Jan Levin is just one of several spring books that's been covered in this week's Nature. Thank you very much, Davide, for Thanks. joining us. That's it for this week. Next time, the gamers who have been helping to solve a quantum puzzle. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.